welcome back to the 2020 Vasculitis Guidelines Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pubman, and I am excited to be talking to you today about Takayasu Arteritis with uh, Dr. Andy Abril. In case you're just tuning in, this is a podcast series from the Vasculitis Foundation, where I'll be reviewing the 2020 ACR VF sponsored vasculitis guidelines and discussing the updated recommendations with one of the main authors from each guideline document. We have a great episode today, and I'm excited to share it with you. So for starters, a brief introduction to Takayasu arteritis. So Takayasu is a large vessel vasculitis, which typically affects the aorta and the proximal branch vessels. Constitutional symptoms and arthralgias can be common, as well as features related to the vessel involvement itself. These include carotidinia, claudication, and then of course, in-organ damage related to uh, vascular flow and affected distributions. Now, before I introduce our guest, I wanted to briefly mention some of the recommendations that I believe will be somewhat common practice for us already. These include a conditional recommendation for high-dose glucocorticoids, as opposed to low-dose or pulse-dose steroids uh, for newly active severe Takayasu arteritis. They also include recommended long-term management, which I think is standard for our rheumatologic diseases. We all tend to follow these patients, as well as inflammatory markers as disease assessment tools. Now, I think we all know that these aren't as reliable in Takayasu as they are in some other diseases, um, but they can be informative. And I, most people that I know generally send them. Um, but with that said, there's some other guidelines that I was hoping to talk to Dr. Abril about. Uh, Dr. Andy Abril is the chair of the Division of Rheumatology at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And he's one of the lead authors on the ACRVF guidelines for Takayasu arteritis. So I'm excited to welcome him to the podcast. Uh, Dr. Abril, uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's an honor to have you on, and I'm looking forward to talking about the Takayasu guidelines. So, uh, you know, I'll actually just get right into it um, and start with one of my first questions. And for me, this is one of the ones that I thought was more interesting and something that I've thought a lot about myself, uh, which is kind of what we do in addition to glucocorticoids. Um, the TOX trial, as, as we all know, uh, which assessed tocilizumab in Takayasu arteritis, uh, reported this not quite significant p-value of 0 0.0596. Uh, and uh, as part of that, it has been generally regarded as a, as a negative trial. Um, the committee uh, recommended TNFs first, um, or methotrexate or Imuran as first-line therapy, which is based on some more positive or encouraging observational data. But I, I was curious to hear your thoughts on how you balance RCTs versus observational data and where you feel on uh, TNFs versus tocilizumab versus uh, these other uh, conventional synthetic DMARDs? That, that, I thought that was a wonderful question, very clinically relevant. So, you know, we have to go back for just a, a sentence or two about the, uh, the, um, the exercise, the grade uh, methodology that we use. It, it goes, you know, it evaluates all the, the available data. So and it gives strength to different studies depending on on whether it's a randomized controlled trial versus observational versus retrospective. So if we look at the information, uh, there is very, very few uh, randomized controlled trials. We know that uh, for tocilizumab, there were two main trials that we looked at. One was retrospective, and then uh, the TACT trial, which was a prospective a study, a small number of patients, 30 plus, I think, I don't know if there was 32 or 39, <clears throat> but, um, the first retrospective trial showed um, um, a um, remission rate of about 6%. But then the TAC-T trial was about 44%. And as you said, the, um, the, um, the, the, the goal was to see, to look at the time uh, of pre-relapse or time to relapse. 
and they it did not meet the criteria with that funny p-value that you mentioned, which we we also knew. But it did show uh, some um, numerical tendency towards improvement compared to placebo. Now, if you look at the TNF data, it's a lot more robust in terms of number of studies in patients. But as you mentioned, they're mainly observational. But they, they looked at relapse rates of about 70% and uh, high relapse rates that when compared to, um, to non-glucocorticoid, non-biologic DMARC like methotrexate, azathioprine, uh, mycophenolate, which also had uh, about 40, 45%, I believe, uh, um, uh, rate of remission. So when you look at all the information, uh, we have a little bit stronger um, bulk or number of data uh, of the studies and data for these other two agents. Now, having said that, if you look at the criteria, we do recommend um, non-glucocorticoid and non-biologic medications and TNF inhibitors over tocilizumab. However, tocilizumab is also considered as an alternative. In the guidelines, we mentioned that if patients did not respond or have a contraindication for TNF inhibitors, tocilizumab could also be uh, a, a valid alternative. And again, these are guidelines, of course, the clinicians um, decide what to do. And, and remember, this, sort of condition, this particular question was a conditional recommendation, meaning that the, the clinician may read those, but then consider other, other options depending on the clinical picture. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I, I, it's a very succinct and, and very nuanced answer, which I think it kind of informed the guidelines, which were somewhat nuanced on this question. Uh, I, I have been using TNFs preferentially in Takayasu based on this data. So it reflects my practice as well. But I think it's an area that we all, you know, because of the general success of IL-6 inhibition in large vessel disease, as John saw, right, specifically, I think we all, all wonder about IL-6 for, for Takayasu. But so then, uh, you know, the next question for me is uh, with progression. The recommendation from the guidelines was to continue therapy instead of switching among patients who had asymptomatic progression. And I found that quite interesting. You know, I think that we're often worried about this sort of feeling of simmering inflammation, driving vascular remodeling if we see progression. Uh, what considerations led to this particular recommendation? And would you be at all worried about someone being undertreated um, for asymptomatic progression? Yeah, the answer is I'll be worried too. That's a concern that we have, of course. But um, we keep in mind a couple of things. Uh, and there's a couple of caveats to the answer uh, mm -hmm. that we gave in the guidelines. So we have to consider that sometimes patients uh, may have some slow progression of disease due to this phenomenon called healing fibrosis, where you can fibrose the vessel after the period of, of activity. The other important thing to consider is that patients uh, often develop collateral. So you may have stable symptoms, uh, symptoms stable, um, stable claudication or ischemia, of course, not critical, um, and, and a little bit worsening or worsening of the stenosis, the patient may have collaterals that, that are, uh, that are uh, helping with circulation. However, the caveat here is that we have to keep in mind the rate of progression. That's important. So if, let's say, you have somebody that you image the vessel and then six months later you imaged again and it's a little bit worse but symptomatically normal and i i could feel uh, I, I would feel comfortable keeping observation if you have somebody who had initial imaging and then three months later you do imaging and it's significantly worse then i would be concerned about 
about uh, the, uh, the rate of progression being more rapid. So these are all considerations. Also the vessel that's involved. Of course, if, if, if it's a critical vessel, uh, coronary or carotid, then you'll be a lot more concerned. So the important thing here is, is to, when, when you identify those patients, you may not necessarily increase or escalate therapy, but you definitely need to follow closely. And, and that's, that's the key here is, is, is follow-up. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a brilliant response. And something that I've found has helped me as well is just working really closely with uh, vascular imaging folks. So I always, I always go review images with the radiologist just themselves. And I feel like they can often provide some insights into that to say, you know, I don't see any uh, inflammation. It, it may just be more fibrosis that's occurring here. And I found that helpful <laughs> in general. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So let me let me actually put you on the spot again about the simmery inflammation thing. Uh, so so the the question of rising inflammatory markers in an asymptomatic patient also came up, and I have seen this a couple of times in patients with with Takayasu where it it, it kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. So uh, the guidelines themselves conditionally recommended non-escalation of therapy for inflammatory markers alone, which is is reasonable to me. But I'd like to know your thoughts on you know how would you feel if the inflammatory markers were quite high. Or what if they continued? Would you think about modifying therapy in those cases, or or what would be your criteria? Again, it, 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 that's another question that concerns us clinicians all the time. Um, and and again, the, the 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 discussion here was: are are those inflammatory markers specific or not? As we all know, they're very nonspecific. And in somebody that's asymptomatic. I think that what the, our recommend is that that should trigger close or closer observation. We are going to need to follow, you know, you know, these patients a little bit sooner, uh, maybe do imaging sooner, and uh, make sure that we are not seeing elevated inflammatory markers plus progression of disease. So now you combine the last two questions, then that <laughs> that would probably lead us to to to. Um, increase or escalate therapy. So the, the point here of this, of this uh, uh, recommendation was to not, as a, as a knee-jerk reflex, start or increase um, immunosuppression just, just with an elevated inflammatory marker. That should raise a flag, of course, uh, and, and we probably need to keep a closer eye on those patients and, and repeat imaging sooner in that type of approach uh, is what we recommend that we take. Now, of course, there are caveats uh, as well, right? You know, if the patient has had already severe disease and, and organ involvement, uh, you may not want to risk, you know, an, a serious episode. So the history of the patient also will help you decide what to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we've all chased labs to our detriment and uh, in general, I think discouraging that practice is probably wise counsel, <laughs> especially for people who don't see these diseases very often. I mean, I think we get nervous when we see rare diseases and we may be inclined to overreact and eventually you run out of DMARDs if you keep, keep going down that rabbit hole. Uh, you know, I, I think something that you just said there that uh, was another thing I wanted to ask about was just regular imaging. I, I think especially in these patients where often you can progress in an asymptomatic fashion. 
Uh, I, I do like to get imaging quite frequently, especially if in people who have elevated inflammatory markers, like we're saying here. So the guidelines did recommend, uh, they said conditionally immunosuppressive therapy for new lesions, but they didn't really say how often or what type of imaging. So would you mind sharing a little bit about either uh, the thoughts that went on with the guideline group or even just your own practice for what types of imaging and how frequently you like to uh, perform them? Absolutely. This was one of the questions that probably generated uh, a fair amount of discussion among the panel. And that was because some of us um, wanted to give some recommendations based on clinical grounds, but some of us said, listen, we have to stick with the uh, methodology here. What information do we have on, on trials or studies that tells us we need to follow a three months versus six months versus 12 months? And we, there was definitely, there's absolutely no data regarding that. So that was the main reason why a concrete recommendation was not given. But if you read the question, we mentioned a few numbers there. Mm -hmm. We did. So, <laughs> and, and, the, and the rationale for that was, of course, is the clinical presentation. If you, if you are just diagnosing the disease and you see early disease, you definitely would like to image earlier. You may want to, and now I'm starting to, to talk about my own practice. You may want to image at three months. Right. So, and, 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 and there, I think in the guideline, we say three to six months as said in parentheses, an example. Yep. So, um, and, and then you want to re-image uh, soon and see if the patient is responding to therapy, make sure there's no critical um, stenosis that rapidly progressing. Uh, now, if you have somebody who's had the disease for, I don't know, five years, stable, uh, off corticosteroids and doing well, you may want to image once a year or even every other year depending on, on, again, which vessels were involved. Of course, if you have somebody who had a critical coronary or carotid involvement, you may want to image them earlier, even if they're stable. So that's why we didn't give any specific recommendations uh, because when we, when we stuck with the methodology, um, there was really not a whole lot of information in literature. So we wanted it to be as much more evidence-based rather than expertise-based. So, so that's, that's the best answer I can give you there, unfortunately. <laughs> I think that's a fair answer. Uh, you know, I, I think the great approach has been, uh, has improved guidelines quite a bit. I believe it's been around since 2011 when the Institute of Medicine uh, report, presented a report on trying to improve clinical practice guidelines. And I think taking this philosophy towards guideline creation is, is wise. But uh, I think it can be hard because sometimes you do want to put your nickel down and say, you know, this is what a bunch of people who treat this a lot recommend. So thank you for at least sharing your own practices. <laughs> um, all right. Last but not least, I've got a real zinger for you. So uh, the, 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 there are a series of recommendations that pertain to surgical management, which is a very challenging thing in this disease. I think all of us are hesitant to intervene on an inflamed vessel. It tends not to go well. And so medical management over surgical intervention when we can is is uh, I think somewhat standard and that that was what was recommended for ongoing claudication and asymptomatic cervical disease. Uh, but the guidelines also uh, favored escalated medical management for worsening limb organ ischemia and for renal vascular hypertension. And I could see that being a little bit co uh, more controversial or I could at least see other uh, clinicians wanting to intervene earlier. So could you touch base on the touch on base on the data behind that recommendation and and maybe even the instances when you think surgical intervention would be uh, indicated. Yes, the, uh, again, the very, very important question and, and, and critical for, for our patients, of course. 
And at the beginning, when we started talking about the surgical recommendations, uh, we mentioned there as a uh, non, I don't know, I don't remember how we called it, non-categorized answer that you mm. have to discuss this with your vascular surgeon before considering surgery. So that's, that's an, an important, um, an important um, concept that we included there. So the, there are some of the studies that were looked at um, show that a lot of the patients that had intervention or surgery when the vessel was actively inflamed actually did not do as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's one of the considerations. Other considerations is that in general, uh, specifically for our renal artery stenosis, regardless of the type of artery stenosis, um, treatment with antihypertensives is preferred initially. So when you look at the interventional trials that, that were included in the, in the, in the guidelines, they, they only included patients that have failed medical therapy. So, yeah. so when we look at the, the information is patients that, that, that fail medical therapy. So very few studies were done in patients who didn't, were not treated with medical therapy first. So because of that, the recommendation uh, was to, to do medical therapy, not just, of course, in tachyacids, immune suppression steroids, but also antihypertensives for the, for the renal artery stenosis. Um, and a lot of those patients uh, with, that are getting critical stenosis may improve with medical therapy alone. However, again, there are some caveats. If you have somebody with uh, critical organ ischemia, somebody that's already having um, CVA type picture, uh, symptoms, or somebody that's having myocardial ischemia, or somebody that's starting to, is impending um, ischemia of the limbs that are threatened to lose viability or function, um, in those situations, you may want to intervene and, and do a, uh, either a surgical procedure or, or a catheter-based procedure. Um, and another of the, of the guidelines uh, recommends in those cases, so when you have to intervene and somebody has active inflammation, that uh, uh, treat those patients with high-doses corticosteroids prior to the procedure mm -hmm. to, try to, to try to control inflammation as well. So uh, critical organ involvement is what uh, would tell, tells us, you know, we have to intervene surgically. That makes sense. I think that's a challenging area. Uh, and I've, I've been on the side, both sides of that, of that debate and it's been, it's been hard. I mean, it takes a lot of interacting with the patients and the vascular surgeons and trying to make sure that everyone kind of understands the potential risks involved because it's hard to undergo vascular surgery with the knowledge that it may not go so well. And um, I, I have definitely, I think we've all probably had experiences where we, a blood vessel was intervened on and then became stenotic. It's just not, it's not ideal to go cutting into inflamed vessels. <laughs> That's general. right. And sometimes the vascular surgeon themselves are the ones that will tell you, um, uh, let's, uh, let's treat aggressively for a couple of weeks and then we'll intervene or something like that. Um, so that's why it's important to have the discussion initially. Yeah, I've had very good interactions with vascular surgeons on this particular topic. I think they're very well aware of it, having probably been, um, you know, knee deep in it in the past. I think they have a good experience in that area. And so I, I've, my interactions have all been very, very helpful uh, for me clinically just to talk through it with them. So I, I think that's kind of uh, close to wrapping up, but are, did you have any final thoughts you wanted to share about the guidelines or Takiyasu? 
Um, well, it, it was a it was a wonderful um, experience uh, personally for me and somebody that has been interested in vascularized for many years. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the great methodology I think makes these guidelines a bit more objective, mm-hmm. and um, it is important to to um, make sure that, that we keep in mind these are these are guidelines, right? These are this is supposed to help. The, the clinician make decisions, but it's not going to replace clinical judgment. A lot of times the guidelines may not apply to a specific clinical scenario. Um, and, um, and again, the idea is to, to try to help uh, guide and give some, some tools so the clinician can do their, their best possible judgment. Um, it was definitely a privilege to participate with such a great group of rheumatologists. And, uh, and um, finally, we're seeing that uh, guidelines are, are close to be published. That's very exciting. I think, uh, you know, those are, those are wide, wise words to end the podcast with. So thank, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, I've learned a great deal and I'm sure uh, everyone listening will as well. So to the listeners out there, be sure to subscribe to the Vascularis Foundation's podcast. Um, you can follow them on Twitter uh, at Vascularis Found. And then uh, check out their website at vascularisfoundation.org to learn about all the great things that they're doing in addition to these guidelines. You can find my podcast at ebroom.com and follow me on Twitter at ebroom. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And thanks again, Dr. Abril, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.